People become very attached to their way of eating, and especially when they believe that it's the one and only way to eat healthfully, it can be very difficult to hear that, you know, I think I said this before, that that's not true, that there are other ways of eating that are okay too. And so I think that it becomes just easier to attach some stigma to that other way of eating. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hi, friends. Great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. Today, I sit down with registered dietitian and vegan nutrition guru, Virginia Messina, known as Ginny Messina to many to talk about myths within the vegan community. Are humans obligate herbivores? Is cheese physically addictive? Is seafood unhealthy due to mercury? Is methylcobalamin the best form of vitamin B12? Do oils raise the risk of heart disease? Is dairy inflammatory? Ginny and I explore each of these questions and more in what I believe is a really informative and important episode for everyone, but particularly those in the plant-based community. Discussing this stuff is not about weakening the message. In fact, it's the opposite. A vegan diet based on whole plant foods can be extremely health-promoting. It doesn't have to be exaggerated and need not be a panacea for it to be a way of eating that is worthy of consideration. And if you've read my book, you'll know that's the case that I make. There's a clear theme or set of dietary characteristics that time and time again lead to humans experiencing better health for longer. This theme is naturally achieved by plant-predominant to exclusive diets based on whole or minimally processed foods. Michael Pollan summarized it well when he said, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. When you then also consider the environment and animals we share earth with, a very strong case can be made to adopt a diet that's as plant-exclusive as possible for the individual. So that's the context for today's episode. Please do enjoy. This is me and registered dietitian, Ginny Messina. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence 
that supports a high-fibre, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hi Ginny, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. It's so great to finally meet you um, outside of social media. It's great to see you, Simon. I know, we've uh, exchanged a few messages over the years and, and I've learned, I have to say, so much from, from your work. So I wanted to just quickly say thank you. Uh, when I think of the registered dietitians out there that have inspired me and, and also the ones that I recommend, I, I always think about you and uh, Jack Norris and, and Brenda Davis. So um, thank you for, for all the incredible work that you've done. Oh, thank you for that. So today we've chosen to focus on addressing some of the major nutrition myths within the vegan community. I thought perhaps though we could start with you personally and and why you're personally vegan. I know that you didn't adopt a, a vegan diet until a decade or so after you became a registered dietitian, if I'm right. Can you kind of share that story? How did that come about? Yeah, I did. I actually did become vegan uh, just about the time that I was becoming a, a registered dietitian, but not throughout my my education. When I was in uh, college and graduate school, I was not uh, I was not vegetarian. I wasn't really thinking about mm. it. So it's been kind. It's been uh, it's been a journey. It's been an evolution. I started out uh, going to college to study social work. That's what I thought that I was going to do with my life, and uh, found myself very surprised that. Um, I enjoyed the the science classes that I had to take as part of a you know, just general liberal arts education. There were science classes that were requirements, and I loved them. And so I started gravitating towards nutrition and especially public health nutrition, and um, just kind of went in that direction and decided to become a dietitian. I wasn't really thinking about vegetarianism. I have had a heart for animals all my life, but I just did not make that connection until I really started studying food and nutrition and thinking about food choices. And that's when it started to occur to me that that my my relationship to animals, my considerations about animals really did have something to do with my food choices. And so I did adopt a vegetarian diet just about the time, just at the end of graduate school, when I became a registered dietitian. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of great because, um, I, you know, I had all, all kinds of, of different jobs when I first started in this field. I worked at a couple of universities. I taught dietetics students. I worked in public health clinics. 
And I kind because I was a vegetarian, I developed this reputation as sort of the de facto expert on vegetarian nutrition. So if somebody needed a guest lecture or they needed, you know, materials developed, educational materials developed, they that always fell to me. So I got to work in this field, um, even though I wasn't I didn't really have a job that was dedicated to plant based nutrition. And there weren't very many people who were interested in um in vegetarian nutrition at at that time so i had lots of lots of opportunities do you remember when 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 you were first thinking about adopting a vegetarian diet and the way i'm thinking about this is that over the years of progress people like yourself and brenda davis and others have really put out so much incredible information that's made it easier for people to to do that transition and, and make those changes and feel confident about doing it in, in a manner that's good for their health. But I'm curious for yourself, do you recall what, what resources, where were you going to, to, to discover the information that you needed to know that it was possible that you could do that, remove the animal foods from your diet and do it in a way that's healthy? Yeah, there weren't very many resources for that. Um, there were some resources from the Seventh-day Adventist Church um, you know, because vegetarianism has been a part of that culture and that community for, you know, for such a long time. Um, the Vegetarian Resource Group in Baltimore was around at that time. And that was another organization that was that was providing some information. But, you know, I was I was actually getting a lot of information from cookbooks. I was reading Laurel's Kitchen, which was a cookbook. And I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a very old timey kind of hippie cookbook that was that was published in the 1970s and was also a handbook on nutrition you know lots of misinformation based on what we know now but those were the kinds of resources i was using and then of course because i was a dietitian and because i was studying this area i was i was reading what um, peer reviewed literature existed i was reading that and getting information about about plant based diets and do you recall what the sort of general feeling was around you from friends and, and family as you were making these changes? Was it something that you were sharing and communicating with others? Were you going about it privately? And, and at that time, was it something that society was accepting as a, something that could be healthy? I think that people definitely accepted it as something that could be healthy. That was the main reason that um, the, the main thing that people talked about when they talked about a vegetarian diet, that it was a healthier way of eating. Mm -hmm. um, I was very open about the fact that I was a vegetarian in my career because, for one thing, because I wanted these opportunities. I wanted people to know that I was a resource. I wanted, when I was teaching at Central Michigan University, I wanted my students to know about vegetarian nutrition. And so it was definitely something that I was talking about. It's a little bit harder with my family. They were absolutely horrified um, that anyone in, in our family would stop eating meat. That was such a part of, of my culture, of my upbringing, as, you know, as it was for many of us. Mm -hmm. So the personal stuff was harder than the professional. Right. And, and today, how do you kind of like people to think about a vegan diet? When you, when you think about its role in, in animal welfare, human health, et cetera, how would you kind of describe the the rationale for adopting a vegan diet? Why you think it's a good choice for people to be thinking about? Um, I am uh, 
very committed to veganism as um, as a component of animal rights, as an expression of animal rights. It is my number one reason for eating this way. It's really my only reason mm-hmm. for eating this way. And I'm very upfront about that because I think it's extremely important to be transparent about my reasons for adopting a vegan diet. I have a big bias about this. I think that people should not eat animals. And I need colleagues and clients and anybody who is working with me to know that. Mm -hmm. And I also want people to know, of course, that this is a compelling reason to stop eating animal products. I think that there are lots of there's a, a really good health argument for reducing animal products in your diet, for eating a vegetarian diet. When it comes to veganism, I think that we have to bring the animal rights message in mm-hmm. because that is the compelling reason for, for being a vegan. And I know we're going to, to, to jump into a bunch of different myths and we've kind of organized those into a, into a list. But I guess just broadly speaking, what do you think is the, the sort of reason why there is misinformation within the vegan community when it comes to nutrition is it is it about trying to to make the vegan diet seem better than it is and the intention is a good one in that that will help more people adopt this diet um when you just think about the, the sort of misinformation that no doubt you've seen over over decades, and and I want to ask you as to whether you think that's getting better or worse, but what do you think is the the kind of the the root cause or where most of this misinformation is stemming from? I think that uh, I think that there are a couple of different reasons why we see so much misinformation in in the vegan community, and of course. It's, you know, it's, it's not just the vegan community. Sure. We, we both know, of course, that it's all different kinds of diets and all different kinds of beliefs about the best way to eat. There's always going to be some mythology ab- about these different approaches. With veganism, I think it, it's very much, as, as you said, that people, people who are devoted to um, animal rights and to animal welfare and animal protection want to see as many people as possible go vegan. And therefore, it's really... Um, uh, there, there's tremendous pull towards promoting veganism or displaying veganism as something that is foolproof and is going to automatically make you healthy, automatically make you skinny. People want to present a very positive message about veganism because they want more people to go vegan. And, and I, I completely respect that. I, I respect the fact that, that people feel so strongly about this. I don't think it's the right way to go about promoting veganism, but I understand it. And then I think that there's another group of people who truly believe that a vegan diet is the only diet that's going to protect their health. Right. And um, th- um, I think that sometimes it's easy to be resistant to information that runs counter to that. It's, it's a little scary. It's a little frightening when you have adopted this diet that you are so sure is the perfect diet to hear information that counters that um, that can be a little bit threatening mm. to your to your choice and to what you believe about mm. what you're doing. So on that second one, where someone really truly believes that a diet without any animal products is absolutely has been proven to be the single most optimal diet for human health, where does that come from? Um, I think it comes from wanting to believe that there is a perfect diet. Mm. There's something that's for for people who are 
able to change their food habits, change their lifestyle habits. There is something very reassuring about believing that the food choices that you're making are not only not only ideal, but um, foolproof that they're going to guarantee that you have good health. And you sort of alluded to the fact that that this misinformation exists in many different diet camps and a parallel could be drawn to, for example, in the low-carb community where someone has had a, a good personal experience with a low-carb diet and then you'll see them advocating that as the single only diet for for human health. And so I think here as well the, 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 the sort of um, getting lost in your own anecdote can, mm-hmm. can also sort of give rise to this idea that this is therefore the way that every single person should eat, the only way that people should eat for optimal health. What do you think the repercussions are? So we've kind of uh, established that some of this misinformation, the intent behind it is actually good. There is, there is good intent. And so what I'm curious to kind of hear from you on for, for someone who may have been caught up in some of this information and um, thinks that, you know, ultimately it's for the greater good, even if the information's not completely accurate, what are the downsides? What are the risks? What are the repercussions of sharing information that is not accurate? Well, I think that the, that the, the most important repercussion is that people can end up being unhealthy. They can end up with, with nutrient deficiencies. I came into this this field of of veganism. Um, my first job working specifically with plant based diets, with vegan diets, was with Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine (PCRM) in, mm-hmm. in Washington D.C. And um, uh, that was that was my first exposure to. I was a vegetarian already, but it was my first exposure to veganism, to health aspects of veganism, to animal rights. It really just opened my eyes to, to so many different things. It was. It was life-changing for me, but my job at um, PCRM really was to promote the health benefits of a vegan diet. And um, as I learned more about veganism and started reading the the research and started looking at, at diet planning as it related to vegan diets, I started to become very concerned about the fact that that we we as as um, plant based health professionals were not giving people enough information about meeting nutrient needs, mm-hmm. and I was seeing uh, th- this is a, an experience that I share with with Jack Norris. It's the reason that we wrote our book Vegan for Life. We wanted to mm-hmm. th- to to tackle this problem. We were concerned about the the problem. There it is. Yes, yes. <laughs> we were concerned uh, that so many that people were failing on a vegan diet. And we didn't believe that there was any reason for that, that, you know, didn't believe that there was anything inherently wrong with the vegan diet. People just did not have the information that they needed. So that's what happens when 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 people buy into mythology or simply don't have the information, their health fails Mm -hmm. and they become ex-vegans. And that's just not good for anybody. So I think that that's the big repercussion from from this this misinformation that that pervades the vegan community. Right. And, and so you've been doing this for a fair while now. Mm-hmm. How, yeah. how do you think the vegan community is going, both, I guess, at the individual level, but also at the level of some of these advocacy groups? You just mentioned PCRM there. How do you think as a collective we're going in terms of setting the record straight and delivering high-quality information 
versus spreading misinformation that where perhaps there's good intent, but at the end of the day, the information's not completely accurate or whole. Yeah, I think we're all over the place for the for the same reasons that um, advocates for other dietary patterns are kind of all over the place. I think we have um, we have some advocates for plant based diets, for whole foods plant based diets in particular, who uh, professionals, health professionals, who have kind of built their career on a particular dietary philosophy, and it's difficult to to change what you're saying and and even what you believe when you've built your career around something. And we have other health professionals who are advocating a vegan diet as the only healthy way to eat because, again, because they are they really want people to go vegan to to save animals. Um, and the, and then there are lots of of non health professional vegans who are listening to these two groups and and you know getting this information and believing this information. But at the same time, what has really changed for me, what has been just extraordinary, it's been so wonderful, is seeing this growing group of vegan health professionals, of plant-based health professionals who are like you, um, who are absolutely committed to sharing good information, even when it's information that vegans don't want to hear. And we see this growing group of dietitians and doctors who are doing this and uh, researchers who are doing it. And also among non-health professionals, there is a, a, a group of, of savvy people who are speaking out on behalf of good evidence-based vegan nutrition and you know, not being fearful about saying things that, that are unpopular. 20 years ago, there were really very few of us saying things that were, that were unpopular and it was really lonely. So it's, it's much better now. Yes, I can uh, certainly agree with, with a lot of that. Um, and, and on the sort of idea of, of things that vegans don't want to hear, I, I think this comes back and, and I just want to kind of reinforce this as we go through this list of myths that the, the intent here with us to, to go through this is not to kind of pick on, on a community or certain messages. It is to, to really emphasize that setting the record straight on these things is actually the path forward to achieving a greater outcome, uh, even though it, it may not seem that way. Um, so we have this list, Ginny, that uh, we've created and um, sort of put into a, a little bit of an order and, and thank you to those on Twitter who engaged in a tweet that I did and, and brought forward a few suggestions. So perhaps we, we sort of just step through these from the top and, and I think as we go through these, Jenny, we'll start to really see the way that you approach vegan nutrition and the way that you're communicating, which, which is probably the, the going to be the greatest takeaway for everyone that's tuning in. So um, the first one is a diet based on a variety of whole plant foods will guarantee that all nutrient needs are met. What do you think about that? Well, I think that um, that that that's that belief is kind of the reason that I've stuck with this field that I that I've stayed here and continued to to do what I've been been doing for all these decades. Um, you know, people have have bought into this idea that as long as you're eating uh, fruits and vegetables and grains and 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 legumes and nuts, that you're automatically going to meet nutrient needs. It's 
I like, I like to remind people that it is not difficult to meet nutrient needs on a vegan diet, but it is not intuitive either. You do have to know something. Cow's milk is not the only source of calcium, but for most people, it's the only source they've ever known about. Mm -hmm. And so when you stop drinking cow's milk, you absolutely have to know where you're going to get calcium. It's not going to, it might just happen based by luck um, through your food choices, but for most people, it's not. You, mm -hmm. you got to know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a crucial issue because it's, you know, again, I don't want people to think that this is some big laborious task learning about all of these nutrients and how you meet nutrient needs. It's not at all. It really is not that difficult, but you have to spend a little bit of time learning just a few things. Mm. And on that, in your book, you, you, you actually make a point about, so in the, in the position statement about vegan diets, there's that wording of appropriately planned. And, yeah. I, and you kind of elaborated on that. Can you can you just share how what you feel uh, about that? And and I thought you made some interesting points there about really that being relevant to any diet. Well, it is, and and of course that appropriately planned clause is is just a thorn in the side of of so many vegan and vegetarian dietitians because any diet has to be appropriately planned. There are lots of people consuming dairy products and eggs and meat who are not meeting nutrient needs because their diets aren't appropriately planned. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, it, it's just kind of a silly clause. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Any diet has to be well-planned in order to meet nutrient needs. Okay. Myth number two, humans are obligate herbivores. This one's a good one. Yeah. So we've all seen those, uh, um, we've all seen those charts showing teeth and jaws and, and, uh, um, di uh, digestive system, the intestine length. And, uh, it, you know, it makes for a very compelling argument, but it's just not true. I mean, you know, we know that our ancestors have been, you know, eating, consuming animal foods for eons. We know that humans evolved as omnivores, that our intestines are kind of somewhere between a carnivore and an, and an herbivore. And, um, you know, the fortunate thing is that we are omnivores who can eat an, an herbivorous diet. We can eat a vegan diet. So um, to me, that's, that's enough to know. I don't think that we need this. Again, this goes back to proving that a vegan diet is the only healthy way to eat. That's not true. Mm. trying to prove that we are supposed to eat a vegan diet, that we evolved to do that. It's not true. And it's just not helpful to, to promote either of those beliefs. All we really need to know is that we can eat mm -hmm. a vegan diet and be healthy. Mm -hmm. We have the choice. Mm -hmm. um, number three, a vegan diet is the only healthy way to eat. We've kind of covered that, but was there anything else you wanted to, to add to that? Yeah, just... Um, uh, you know, I I wish that it were true. Maybe it's true. I don't know. I don't think that we have enough evidence to say that it's the only healthy way to eat. And I think that it's unlikely. I think that it's highly unlikely that including small amounts of animal foods in your diet is going to uh, be detrimental to your health if if your diet overall is low in saturated fat, high in fiber, nutrient rich. You're getting lots of potassium and um, calcium and, and just eating a generally good diet. If you're having a serving of cheese and a little bit of fish every day, I don't think that's going to make or break your health. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, and it's a, it's a belief that, um, I, you know, a lot of people can't, they're really unhappy when, when I say that, 
But to me, it just always comes back to to the fact that we have to advocate for veganism on the basis of um, mm-hmm. of animal protection because that's something that we know. We know mm-hmm. that production of all animal foods is harmful to animals. We can't prove anything about diet. We can't prove that a vegan diet is the only healthy way to eat. Number four, and this comes back to this idea of planning and and learning a few new things about food as you're changing your diet. Vegans don't need to pay attention to protein. It's impossible to get too little. What do you think yeah. about that? Well, of course, it, it, it is possible to get too little protein. It's certainly possible for older vegans to get too little protein. I think there's good evidence that protein needs increase as people age. Um, and we know that vegan diets are lower in protein than omnivore diets. So I think that as people get older, there is a real risk of not getting enough protein. I don't think that there's a terrible risk of not getting enough protein for younger vegans, for vegans in their 20s and 30s and 40s. I think most vegans are going to get enough protein, but it is possible to fall short. And in particular, if um, someone is not, is not including legumes in their diet, at least two servings, hopefully three servings of legumes is what, is what I really like to mm-hmm. recommend. It's possible to fall short on protein. It's possible to fall short on some of the amino acids. So, um, it, you know, just because we don't see vegans walking around with kwashi workor doesn't mean that all vegans are getting enough protein. You can have moderate protein deficiency that uh, takes a toll on immunity and muscle strength. Um, you wouldn't see that as a protein deficiency, but it's a protein inadequacy. Got a couple of follow-up questions on that. So if someone is, um, I guess, considered elderly, um, they're in the later years of life, do you have any strategies or tips for them to help increase their protein intake during that time? Yeah, I think it's a little tricky because calorie needs tend to go down as people get older. You know, now we're talking really about people in their 70s and 80s, but calorie needs go down, protein needs probably go up. So you do have to really put some emphasis on eating um, protein-rich foods. I generally recommend that people replace uh, some of the grains in their diet with legumes mm-hmm. so that you're not eating more calories, but you are eating more beans and beans and, and soy foods. And to replace um, fruits with vegetables, since fruits are, are pretty much devoid of protein and vegetables at least have some. Um, but you d- it's definitely something that, um, uh, that takes some thought right. and, and takes some effort. And I, I think I might be kind of jumping into the territory of a, of a further myth, but what are your thoughts on more processed sources of, of protein that perhaps are offering more protein for less calories like um, soy protein isolate or pea protein isolate or some of the um, plant-based alternative meat products? Yeah, I think they're, I think they're just great. Um, I think that, uh, that obviously – you know, I, I want I want people to be eating lots of fiber rich foods and, and foods that are that are packed with nutrients. But some of these high protein foods, these more processed protein foods can really help people who are uh, not meeting protein needs or who are worried about meeting protein needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, elderly people, uh, people who are on weight loss diets because protein needs go up a little bit when when you're losing weight. Um, I just think that these foods can can play a great role. I use protein powders. I use a protein powder after I after I weight lift, and um, I don't know if it does anything, but it it mm-hmm. somehow it just it 
it feels like a really good thing to do. And I don't, um, I don't think that it's unhealthy. I'm not worried about, uh, about having those foods in my diet. I don't want to see people eating veggie meats all the time because they're high in sodium. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's a little bit of an issue for right. me, but, um, but other than that, I think those, those foods mm-hmm. are great. So on that, um, if someone say turning a, a veggie meat plant-based alternative, the label over and looking at it, is there, is there a kind of amount of sodium that you would say, well, that gets a tick, that's pretty good. But if it's over this amount, it's probably one that you want to eat a little less frequently. Oh, I think all of the veggie meats are actually quite high in sodium. So I think it's really just a matter of, um, of if, if you're watching sodium intake of, of limiting them in, in your diet, not having right. them every day. Okay. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Number five, 
vegans have lower calcium needs because their diets are lower in protein. Yeah, you, you know, I would think that this myth would go away by now. It's been around for a long, long time, probably probably 30 years or so. And there are some, there are reasons to, to believe that this is true, that high protein diets cause um, uh, calcium to be leached out of, the, out of the bones because higher protein intake, especially from grains and animal foods, um, can create a more acidic condition and the, uh, uh, the bones are active in countering that, that condition and buffering the acid. And as part of that process, some of calcium is released from the bones. So there's a logical explanation for this. There's a logical reason to believe that people who consume less protein or are not eating a lot of animal protein, that they're going to have lower calcium needs. But what we see from the research is that, uh, first of all, that protein is probably very effective in increasing calcium absorption. And one school of thought, based on some, some good research, is that the, the calcium that's being released from the body, that's, that's being um, released in the urine, is actually a byproduct of this higher calcium absorption. So it might not have anything to do with bone turnover whatsoever. And we know in general that protein is good for bones, that higher protein diets are associated with better bone health. So we haven't seen any real evidence that vegans can get away with lower calcium intakes. I do advise vegans to get plenty of calcium um, until we know otherwise. I think uh, it's really important. I, I don't necessarily recommend concentrating on the RDA because I think that calcium absorption is the much much bigger issue. You want to choose foods with good calcium bioavailability. So mm -hmm. I encourage vegans to eat plenty of um, calcium set tofu, calcium fortified plant milks, and the leafy green cruciferous vegetables. Mm -hmm. And just in terms of building strong bones, do you have any other tips, I guess, outside of uh, meeting calcium needs, consuming adequate amounts of protein, what else should folks be thinking about? Yeah, calcium, protein, uh, lots of fruits and vegetables. There's some evidence that diets high in fruits and vegetables are, are good for bone health. And um, exercise, which is by far the most important thing. Being physically active is the most important thing for bone health, of course. Mm -hmm. And what about this idea that you need dairy for, for building strong bones? Well, there's certainly no evidence for it. There's no evidence that people who consume dairy products have stronger bones. Um, there's no reason why they would because, you know, when we look at dairy products, we say, yeah, you know, they're great for bone health. They have calcium and vitamin D and protein, but we can get all of those things from, um, from plants. Well, we can get protein and calcium from plants and we can get vitamin D through fortification, which is the same way that cow's milk mm -hmm. um, provides vitamin D because fortified, at least in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so there's nothing unique about milk when it comes to bone health. Anything that we need for bone health, we can get from, from other foods. Mm. That brings us to myth number six, which is about dairy. And this is one that I see quite a lot. And I think there's a lot of confusion here. Uh, dairy foods cause inflammation, mucus production, and cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I always get myself into a lot of trouble with with the dairy issue because I I find I I find myself in this situation all the time where I'm defending dairy foods and I don't want to defend dairy. I think it's mm -hmm. a horrible industry. Um, again, there's no reason to include it in your diet and it's 
it's just, um, it's bad for the environment, it's horrible for the animals. But it's pretty hard to make the case against dairy based on health. The research doesn't show that it causes inflammation. The research is a little bit conflicting, but it, it probably has just the opposite effect, although it's probably a very tiny effect. It probably doesn't really make much difference to inflammation one way or the other. Um, definitely, uh, definitely has not been shown to increase mucus production, except in people who have dairy allergies. And uh, if you have a dairy allergy, you don't want to be eating dairy anyway. And then the cancer issue um, is a little is a little stickier because um, because of the evidence about dairy foods and prostate cancer. Uh, we you know we have evidence from the epidemiological. Uh, from the epidemiological research, there is reason to believe that men who have high intakes of dairy foods have a higher risk of prostate cancer. So I, I don't, you know, it hasn't been proven. It hasn't been proven as a cause and effect relationship, but I do think that it's something to pay attention to. I don't think that dairy has been, um, uh, uh, has been associated with other types of cancer to any compelling degree. Right. For breast cancer, it's kind of conflicting. For colon cancer, it seems to be protective. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's a that's a big story where it's a little bit difficult to draw some conclusions. But I do think that men should be uh, should limit their dairy intake mm -hmm. um, and get calcium and and vitamin D from fortified plant milks. And that was the message I from the latest um, Adventist Health study mm -hmm. that looked at um, at at dairy food. I think it was published just early this mm -hmm. month and it looked at dairy foods and, and prostate cancer. And mm -hmm. that was the message from those researchers. If you're concerned about prostate cancer, drink plant milks. Coming back to the myth. So if, if someone stumbles across something that's suggesting dairy is poison or outright causes cancer, you're saying that this is, is not supported by science, bit of an exaggeration and perhaps not giving the full picture of, of what we see when we look at studies looking at dairy yeah i th i think that it that it is um i think that it's not very well supported by the by the research mm -hmm. yeah that 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 fact that there is an uh, the opposite association for colorectal cancer yeah. where dairy may be protective that one doesn't seem to get as much airtime, which right. i always find quite quite interesting um, right and it's a and it's a fairly and it's a fairly strong relationship, I, I I believe. Do you think that's something inherent about dairy, other than the kind of nutrients that you mentioned before, or do you think it it's things like calcium, for example? I think it's probably calcium. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that that's at least at least one of the theories. Okay, number seven is continuing on this dairy theme. Cheese is physically addictive. And this, I think, yeah. leads back to the the sort of casomorphins uh, discussion. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's it's about the casomorphine, uh, the casein in cheese that um, that can be converted to casomorphine, which does um, attach to dopamine receptors. I mean, that's that's a true thing. There's that physiology is there. The question is whether it ever makes it out of the intestines to get to those receptors. Um, does it attach to them in quantities or in ways that actually have a real effect I, I, that actually makes cheese addictive? Um, 
I, I don't think that there's any evidence. You, you know, we, we hear the news stories about it, which it's the news, so it exaggerates things. And, and that's understandable. We hear, you know, that it's like crack. It's as bad as crack. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is, is as bad as crack for your brain. Um, and that's just not true. It doesn't have nearly, nearly that effect. Uh, there's certainly no evidence that it does. I really think that the big thing about cheese, and it is true that people say, oh, you know, I would go vegan. I, I just can't mm-hmm. imagine giving up cheese. It's really difficult for people to give up cheese because cheese has fat and it has salt and it has, and um, aged cheeses have umami, mm-hmm. which is a very compelling um, mm-hmm. essence of foods, something that, that people want. You know, breast milk has umami. There's, that's one of the theories about, about the, advantages of it that babies will will drink more of it and grow better because it has umami so i think that that's the explanation for cheese i think that if you make a great nut cheese with um a nutritional yeast in it that also has lots of umami that that's that that is as compelling and addictive as uh cow's milk cheese number eight is seafood is unhealthy due to its mercury content. So this one I come across quite a lot if I sort of convey what the research shows about fish in general and 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 conveyed in, in what I think is uh, an honest representation of the science that we have. Often I'm met with, but there's mercury, there's high levels of mercury. So what do you th- what do you think about this idea that seafood should be avoided due to its mercury content and that mercury content makes it an unhealthy food to consume? Yeah, it's a, this is another this is another issue that is that is difficult because certainly there is mercury in in seafood, um, in in fish, and that is something that that we would want to avoid. Uh, many health professionals believe that the uh, benefits of consuming fish outweigh any risks, and so for that to be true, then we have to know that there are specific benefits of consuming fish, DHA and and EPA, the omega-3 fatty acids, of course. And I'm not convinced that we know for a fact that there's any particular advantage to consuming these foods. Again, the research is is pretty conflicting when when it comes to this issue. Um, But if that were true, uh, and, and, you know, and again, it may be, again, I'm not saying it's not, I simply don't know. If it is true, there are certainly types of fish that are much lower in mercury. You know, if you avoid the, the large predator fish and um, eat the small fish that aren't predators, you're not going to get very much mercury. And those are the kinds of fish that are recommended for pregnant women, for example, because they're pretty safe. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, this, this always comes back to this... Um, uh, to this idea that when we consume animal foods, uh, if people choose to consume animal foods, when you make the healthiest choices, y- you might do better for your body, but you end up doing more harm to animals. Because if we want to eat fish and avoid mercury, we're going to eat small fish. And that means we're going to eat more fish. So more fish get killed and eaten. It's the same thing, you know, people say, well, I'm, you know, I eat meat, but I want to have a really healthy diet, so I don't eat red meat. I eat, I only eat chicken meat. And again, you know, you end up eating more chickens, be killing more mm-hmm. chickens because they're smaller animals. So, um, so I think that you can eat, you can have fish in a diet that is healthy. I think that it causes people to make some very unfortunate decisions that are really, really bad for animal mm-hmm. welfare. 
Um, so I guess the answer to that question is that I think that you can healthfully eat some kinds of fish. I really hope that people won't do it because it's really bad for the fish. Mm-hmm. What do you think? And, and and I always find this an interesting conversation about bivalves. So oysters and say mussels and, and scallops. If yeah. someone was say eating seafood, but they were met with this kind of ethical dilemma about eating sardines and uh, salmon and mackerel, you know, seafood that we clearly know is sentient. What do you feel or do you have any thoughts about the consumption of bivalves, particularly what I see online and in certain conversations is farmed bivalves where there's no bycatch and potentially some benefit for the environment? I would not do it myself. It uh, Eating bivalves does, does not feel like a good fit to my perception of of ethical veganism but i'm not completely convinced of the harm that it causes i'm not completely convinced that that bivalves really have any any um sense of of fear or pain when they're um when when they're processed um so if somebody else wants to eat these, it's, it's not a hill I'm going to die on. I'm not going to say to them, oh, no, you, you shouldn't be eating scallops. You know, you just, you shouldn't do that. It's really bad for the animals. I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste time on that. So um, I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting question. I wish we knew more about it. I am not prepared to, to eat bivalves this, at this point myself, but if someone else feels like it is okay to do, I'm, I can't really argue with them about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on to number nine. A low-fat plant-based diet is the optimal vegan diet. So here we're talking about the amount of fat within a whole food plant-based diet. And I think a lot of these ideas tend to come from you know, a, a few different studies out there that have looked at a low-fat vegan diet for cardiovascular health or type 2 diabetes for for example you'll be very familiar with those what do you think about that idea is there any truth to that um i don't uh the question is whether it's the ideal diet like the ideal diet a low fat vegan the diet. ideal so or optimal way to do a vegan diet okay. is is low fat okay um so this is a this is how I entered this this field. I worked for PCRM. That's how, as, as I said, that's how I first became vegan. And PCRM did then and continues to promote a very low-fat diet. And that was my introduction to veganism. And I, uh, I believed that it was true. And I ate that way. Um, counted, you know, just didn't eat any oils and you know, hardly any nuts at all. I tried to eat all starches and and all high carb foods. Um, then I started reading the research of, about heart disease and and fat, and um, uh, and and of course came to realize, you know, that fat is is good for uh, for lowering LDL cholesterol. That unsaturated fats are great in this regard, and that. Um, uh, you know, very high fat diets may be associated with weight gain for some people um, because they do push calorie intake mm-hmm. up. So there can be, for some people, there might be a reason to curtail fat intake a little bit. But I don't know of any real evidence that that limiting all types of fats is going to improve your health. And I think that 
it's a worse choice for heart disease. We, you know, we know that, um, that the essential fatty acids that are found in plants are important in helping to treat and prevent heart disease. Um, polyunsaturated fats are great. So why do you think, because I, I agree with you, I think that that's, if you look across the, the broad body of literature, it seems very clear that polyunsaturated fats, particularly those coming through foods like nuts and seeds, uh, but even some oils, which I think we're going to get to, can be very beneficial for heart health. But why do you think there is this segment within the vegan community that is is maintaining this position and that's been maintained for, for quite a few decades now that know, in fact, the best outcomes are achieved by lowering total fat and having just a, a, an overall low-fat diet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's primarily about weight loss. I think that um, um, when you greatly reduce the amount of fat in, in the diet, many people will experience weight loss. And when you make a diet very restrictive, uh, when you're eliminating lots and lots of categories of foods, and when you are eating a vegan diet and then cutting out even more categories of foods, you're getting into some pretty restricted eating. And people who eat very monotonous, restricted diets do tend to have more success in losing weight. Weight loss is usually accompanied by drop in blood pressure, and um, and that's associated with better heart health. Uh, there's you know some of the the studies that have looked at um, uh, reversal of atherosclerosis, and and I don't know whether you I know that uh, that there are lots of questions about about whether that's actually true about whether it was actually reversed. But either way, um, you know, one school of thought is that it has nothing to do with the amount of fat in the diet. It has nothing to do with whether it's a vegan diet. It has to do whether people lose weight and lower their blood pressure, mm-hmm. and um, and that any reversal in atherosclerosis is due to that reduction in blood pressure. So I think that this is just, um, uh, I think it is just a really easy way to restrict the diet in a way that maximizes the chances that, that people are going to lose weight and therefore they're going to, you know, see these, these other health benefits. So if someone is, let's say eating a diet that is a low fat plant-based diet, do you think that the addition of, say, some some extra fats coming through nuts and seeds and and potentially olive oil, do you think that improves their overall diet quality? Oh, I think it does. I think um, you know because we know about the health benefits of of these polyunsaturated fats. I think that um, it, that it definitely improves the quality of the diet and. Mm-hmm. Um, increases the chances that you'll lower your LDL cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And just for the listeners who may be wondering what you were talking about there with regards to reversal, um, I think that just to put some context there, there's some questions around was true reversal achieved? But with you know, regardless of that, there are studies showing improved health outcomes, which really is what matters most. So it's not, it's not necessarily questioning those studies and saying they're, they're kind of completely invalid or, or anything like that. Right. There's some technical things to be clarified around whether by definition you can say reversal. Um, right. So that's where the kind of questions kind of remain there. Um, cool. So that's, that's number nine. Uh, one last p- question I do have on, on fat is 
What about the the almost flip side? So how do you feel about someone who perhaps feels better on a higher fat vegan diet with less grains, for example? Is that is that also a potential option for someone? I think it's a potential option, and and you know, and I sh- I should say that um, even though I think that adding a little bit of fat to a very low fat diet is is a good thing to do. If somebody has great health on a very low fat diet and they like eating that way and it's working for them, that's fine with me. I'm definitely not saying that that people should not eat that way. I just don't think it's the ideal recommendation for everyone. And I feel the same way about high fat diets. Um, if if somebody is eating that way and all of their health parameters are great and they are happy with their diet and they feel good and they like their food and they love being vegan on their high fat diet. I think it's great. I have I have no problems with that with that whatsoever. But again, it's not something that I would recommend across the board. I recommend right. in, in terms of, of nutrients, you know, a little bit of moderation among among sure. all three of the nutrients. Right. And I guess the, the biggest take take home message here being that we shouldn't demonize all fats collectively. There, there are different types. There are some, sure, we want to reduce our exposure to, but then there are others where the science suggests that their inclusion can be a health-promoting one. Right. Uh, so moving on to number 10, and I think we've sort of touched on this, but I'll throw it out to you and you can add anything if you feel uh, it's necessary. Healthy vegan diets should include only whole foods. So we have touched on it a little bit because of course, if you're talking about a a diet that includes only whole foods, that means that it's not including oils, of course, Mm -hmm. and that's the big one. Um, It's not including any of the veggie meats. Um, And from there, I think, you know, we get into, we get into some philosophical stuff because there are many different schools of whole food plant, plant plant-based diets. There are some people who will say that, um, you know, you shouldn't be eating too much whole grain bread, that that's, uh, you know, the, the components mm-hmm. of the food are broken down too much and it's not really a whole food. So we can get into some real restrictions here. And I don't think that, um, uh, you know, again, I don't, I don't think there's any reason why anyone needs to eliminate all of those foods from their diet. I don't know of any evidence that vegans who eat none of those foods are healthier than vegans who include some of those foods in, mm-hmm. in their diets. Um, if you're, you know, eating, if all of your food is fried in oil, if you're just eating like veggie meats fried in oil all day long, that's probably not great. Mm-hmm. But, um, but there's a, you know, there's a, a space in between here where you can add some of these, um, uh, some of these more processed foods to your diet, add some oils to your diet. Um, added fats can improve nutrient absorption. They make food taste good. You know, one school of thought is that the, the reason that, uh, that olive oil gets all this credit for being so great in the Mediterranean diet, maybe it's just because it makes mm. vegetables taste so good that people eat more of them. Um, uh, some of these uh, more processed foods, like even breakfast cereals, you know, for families that are raising kids on a vegan diet, they can be lifesavers. They can really help kids meet calorie needs and meet nutrient needs. So I think we need to, to maintain some space for these different mm-hmm. kinds of dietary needs, these different approaches to mm-hmm. eating and recognize that, that none of these particular patterns has a monopoly on health. None of them have been shown to be the one and only good way to eat. Why do you think that there is, I guess, some stigma associated with you know, some of these more processed foods 
and and almost a kind of purity approach to to a whole food plant based diet. Where, where do you think that comes from? I you know I I think that that there's a that there's a little bit of a of a false dichotomy here between people who eat a plant based diet for health versus people who eat a plant based diet for animals and the ones who do it for animals are junk food vegans. And so they're, you know, creating this, this bad image for veganism. They're not healthy. Um, they're not thin. And, and so that, you know, that's not good for, good for veganism. And they're just, you know, they're not doing veganism right. Mm. And that's certainly a false dichotomy because it's, it's not two extremes like that. Um, again, there are people who are just having a, you know, a treat and a, uh, you know, and, and an easy processed food every day and, and not eating junk all day long. So, but, you know, I think um, people become very attached to their, to their way of eating. And especially when they believe that it's the one and only way to eat healthfully, um, the, uh, it, can, it can be very difficult to, to hear that, um, that, that, you know, I think I said this before, that that's not true, that there are other ways of eating that are, that are okay too. And so I think that it becomes just easier to attach some stigma Right. to that other way of eating. Yeah, this is an, an interesting thing to kind of think about. Have you come across any any sort of data that's looked at the willingness to, say, include fortified foods and supplements within a vegan diet and whether there's a difference between someone who is motivated to adopt a plant-based diet for health reasons versus ethical reasons? Because there could be an argument made that, that a, a larger percentage of people coming from a health point of view, may be less inclined to use supplements because they are coming from that kind of purity sort of angle. I feel like I have seen something. There have been a whole, there are a whole lot of, um, of, there's a whole lot of research that's been published in the journal Appetite, um, if you're familiar with that, mm -hmm. that has looked at beliefs and habits of vegetarians and vegans, often young women, and they've looked at some of the differences between um, those who are motivated by health and those who are, are motivated by, um, by animal rights or, or animal protection. And I kind of think that they have looked at this issue, but I, I, can't, okay. I can't quite put my brain cells on it. Okay. I can't remember for sure. But I think, it's, I think it's out there. Little pieces of research, I think, are out there. And I think that they reflect exactly what, what you would expect. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we can... We can maybe do some homework and throw it up on Twitter for, for those that are interested. Um, okay, so number 11 is really a, a follow-on, and you mentioned oils there. There is this idea out there that all oils are unhealthy, that we really need to adopt an oil-free diet if we want to achieve optimal health, and that oils any oils will raise the risk for heart disease. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, it's a, the, the, I think that the rationale for this is kind of a, a, a two-pronged approach. One is that oils are, are high in fat, and so they, shouldn't, they can't play a role in a low-fat diet. And the other is that they're a processed food, and um, therefore they can't play a role in a, in a whole foods diet. Um, and you know, and, and, you know, we hear all the time that, you know, oils are 100% fat. And, um, and my response to that is always, well, yeah. So what does that mean? 
uh, why is that a bad thing? I, I can't, I, mm-hmm. you would have to show me that eating, eating a food that's 100% fat has some kind of, some kind of health repercussions. Um, you know, oils, certainly some oils are very high in saturated fat. And those are oils and tropical oils, for example, are oils that, that, you know, we want to minimize in the diet, even in vegan diets, even though vegans typically have low saturated fat intake. Um, but these other oils, these oils that are high in polyunsaturated fats or high in monounsaturated fats, they are providing, they are providing fatty acids that we know are good for health. And we don't have uh, research to suggest that people who cook with these oils have uh, poorer health than people who don't use them. That research just is not there. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason, there's no mechanism for it. There's no reason to believe that people who are including oils in their diet would, would have poorer health. So it's not, um, again, you know, I think, uh, I think, again, it's this idea of making diets very restrictive, basing diets on, on some, some very specific rules, um, to uh, and to uh, make it more likely that people will lose weight, that they'll lower blood pressure, that they'll they'll have some of some of these health outcomes. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate because I know what some people might be thinking here. They might be thinking, but Ginny, wouldn't you be better off getting fats from olives rather than olive oil, or wouldn't you be better off getting your fats from avocado? rather than avocado oil and i'm sure you've heard that a lot mm-hmm. what would what would your thinking or response to that be well you know my response my response to that is is that um so first of all my response to that is no to the olives because the olives are high in in mm-hmm. salt they're high in sodium so um i love olives but uh they're not mm-hmm. any healthier for you than than olive oil um Avocados and nuts and seeds, you know, all things considered, they are healthier foods than the oils that are made from these foods. However, it's really difficult to um, saute onions in avocados and in, in chopped nuts. I mean, you, oils have, culin- they have culinary purposes that enhance our enjoyment of food. Mm. And they do it in ways that are not harmful to our health. So yes, I think it's really great if 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 you you're sitting down and you have a a, a choice uh, between chopping an avocado on top of your salad or putting some oil on top of your salad, and you're happy with either with either one, then yeah, go with the avocado. But if you really like to have a vinaigrette on your salad, it's not going to hurt you. And if mm-hmm. you enjoy that, there's no reason not to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. The practicality and helping people find a way of eating that they can adhere to and enjoy is mm-hmm. an important part of this um, conversation it's, here. It's, it's an important part of health and, right. um, and it's, it's an important part of our vegan advocacy. We want people to know that there is a, a mm-hmm. vegan way of eating for everyone mm-hmm. and you don't have to eat this, this one <clears throat> restricted mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of diet. You don't have to follow this one set mm-hmm. of rules. There are other ways right. that you can eat if that's what you enjoy. Yeah, that's that's interesting in itself. This idea that there is not one prescription and that mm-hmm. you can adapt to this way of eating in the way that works best for you. Um, some people are looking for that set single prescription and um, the silver bullet. But I think the great thing about what you're explaining here is this means that 
there's a lot of choice and you can play around and really find something that that works for you. The other thing that I think is interesting when you start to compare, say, avocado to avocado oil and 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 other nuts to nut oils and and you know what's healthier and, and you play this game on paper is you, you can get into this trap of if we were always to compare every food and and determine what's the healthiest out of those we'd end up with really only a few foods on our plate and we lose yeah. all of that variety right we're left yeah. with nothing so um we have to keep keep that in mind as well yeah uh, that's a good point Number 12, a raw foods diet is the optimal vegan diet. So this is a bit of a similar claim to a low-fat plant-based diet being the optimal vegan diet, which we've covered, often comes from a slightly different part of the community. How do you feel about a raw food diet being the optimal vegan diet? Is there any evidence for that? And if someone's come across that, what would you like them to be thinking about? Yeah, it's interesting because I often hear – I often hear uh, a raw food diet described as uh, as a way to take your veganism to the next level. You can always make your vegan diet a little bit cleaner. You can always make it a, a, a little bit more healthy. That's the message that I hear when I hear people talking about going raw, when, when they started out as vegan in particular. Um, and I, you know... Raw fruits and vegetables are are great. You know, it's good to include some of those in your diet. That's that, of course, is not what people are talking about when they're talking about about raw foods diets. There's not that much research on raw foods diets, so it's so to be fair, if they have any great advantages, we probably just don't know about them because because we haven't seen them. But um, um, I can't think of why there would be any particular health advantage to eating a raw foods diet. We know that there are some disadvantages. We know, for example, that they're not recommended for children. And that raises a, that raises a red flag for me. If, if, a, if a diet is not good enough to support people during the growth years, is it really something that, that we want to recommend? Mm-hmm. Um, it can be very laborious. It can really uh, take a lot of time. It can be very time consuming, take a lot of time in the kitchen to prepare raw foods. And, um, and I kind of worry a little bit about what kind of an image that presents for veganism mm. if people think that eating a healthy, the healthiest vegan diet is a diet that demands that you put a lot of time into cooking and, um, and that you, you know, follow some very specific rules about mm. the way to eat. So, so from, both, um, uh, from both a health uh, health perspective and um, an advocacy perspective. I don't think it's a good idea to to recommend a raw foods diet. And we do, you know, we see some some nutrient issues with zinc and calcium and and uh, bone health. So so there are there are real concerns about it. So no, I don't recommend a, a raw foods diet. I'm assuming that within this kind of message, there is a presumption that cooking negatively affects the nutritional properties of food. So is, is that something that you've researched? Should we be worried about heating plant foods and that having a negative effect on, on the nutrition available and what we'll be consuming? And if people are heating their food, is there any uh, advantages over the method of heating? Um, well, you know, certainly some, some methods of cooking are healthier than others. Steaming is, is a great way to prepare vegetables if you want to maintain as much of the, the nutrient content as possible. 
it definitely cooking can reduce nutrient content of foods and especially if foods are boiled and cooked for for a long time but cooking can also enhance nutrient availability and make it easier to to absorb those foods cooking and adding a little bit of fat is great for um for absorbing certain nutrients so i so i you know i don't think that um i you know i think that being careful about the way you cook fruits and vegetables is a good idea and eating some raw fruits and vegetables is good but i don't think that you know for example that you shouldn't cook beans you should only sprout them um i you know i don't i don't see any real good mm -hmm. rationale for for that approach okay let's talk about vitamin b12 okay one that comes up quite quite a lot and there's a couple of different myths here and the, the first one i think potentially goes back to this idea that humans are herbivores. But this one is that we can get vitamin B12 from seaweed or unwashed vegetables. And, and often I think mushrooms also come up here. How do you feel about that? Well, um, it, you know, there have been some studies, uh, most, mostly by a single group of, of researchers from, from Japan. There have been some studies of vitamin B12 in certain sea vegetables and um, they have have claimed in their papers that they have isolated vitamin B12 from these sea vegetables, but they haven't been, the, the compounds that they've isolated have not been tested to see whether they actually can treat a B12 deficiency, whether they actually have any active vitamin, whether they have any B12 activity. So we don't know whether they're B12 or whether they are inactive analogs. And, and that's always a problem with these mm -hmm. foods that they contain both active vitamin and vitamin B12 lookalikes that don't have any vitamin activity. Um, so that's, that has, has caused some confusion because, because that research has been published fairly recently, you know, within the past couple of decades. And, um, and so it's, it's sort of helped to promote this idea that you can get vitamin B12 from, from sea vegetables. And we just don't have good research to show that that's true. As far as we know, vitamin B12 is available to us only from animal products. And so if we're not eating animal products, we have to take it, we have to play it safe and take a B12 supplement or eat fortified foods. Um, yeah, there's vitamin B12 in the dirt, uh, but the, there's no evidence that just eating unwashed um, produce, which is a terrible idea anyway, to, to not wash your produce. And it probably is not going to have any effect on your your vitamin B12 status. It's such a hard it's such a hard thing because B12, it, you know, all of the anti-vegans, this is the thing that they right. hold up to us, you know? If if a vegan diet is so great, you know, how can it be if it doesn't provide all all nutrients if you have to add a supplement? And so understandably, um vegans desperately want to believe that we have some kind of plant or algae source of vitamin b12 but the the evidence is just not there mm -hmm. yeah so it's another one where it's difficult to accept the intent is, is a good one in in trying to find some sort of source of of b12 out there and prove people wrong um yeah. but your so your advice is just to to really just accept what the facts say and to plan accordingly to consume the fortified foods or or a supplement yeah. And I, and, you know, and I always point out to, to people, as you know, that um, we also recommend that everyone over the age of 50 takes right. a vitamin B12 supplement, because as you age, it becomes much more difficult to absorb vitamin B12 
from animal foods because it's bound to protein. So, um, so older people probably can't get enough vitamin B12 unless they are eating fortified foods or, or taking supplements. And that doesn't mean that, you know, turning 55 is unnatural. Um, you know, that we, that, 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 I mean, aging is not a great thing, but, but, but that aging is a bad thing. I, you know, we just have to accept this. We just have to accept that there are certain groups of people who have to take vitamin B12 supplements and they are older people who are eating meat and all vegans. So this brings us to number 14, which is more looking at the particulars of supplementation. And often there's sort of a little bit of a debate or argument between the best form of vitamin B12. So this one that we've got here is methylcobalamin is the best form of vitamin B12. Yeah. And the, the, the reason, the, the, so it's not, um, the reason that people believe that is because it's a coenzyme form and, um, and, and so it, it needs to go through fewer steps in the body before, before we can use it for vitamin B12. And, uh, and so that's one reason that people want to use methylcobalamin. The other reason is that the, the, the supplement form uh, that we recommend most often is cyanocobalamin, which has a cyanide molecule attached to it. And, um, you know, people don't want to be putting a whole lot of cyanide into their bodies. So that's one of the reasons that some doctors recommend avoiding cyanocobalamin and, and using methylcobalamin instead. The issue, um, so first of all, I think that cyanocobalamin is, is safe for most people. It's a very tiny amount of cyanide. It's way lower than what, um, uh, what's considered to be a, a toxic or dangerous level. It doesn't even come close to it. So I don't think that that's, that that's an issue. Um, and the other thing is, is that we just have more research on it. We've just studied it more. And the little bit of research that we have on methylcobalamin suggests that it might be less stable in the vitamin. It might degrade a little bit more quickly so that people end up needing much higher doses of it in order to meet vitamin B12 needs. And we just, we don't have a good handle on how much people need if they're taking right. methylcobalamin. So it's not that it's bad. You can use it to meet vitamin B12 needs. You need to take pretty big doses. Um, cyanocobalamin is just, a, is just a better choice. That's a, that's a really important point, though, that most of the sort of recommendations for the B12 dosage that you'll see online uh, and in books like yours are for cyanocobalamin. Yeah. And to just translate that microgram amount to methylcobalamin may actually not be the, the right amount of methylcobalamin that you require to absorb enough and to maintain good vitamin B12 status. So that's something else to, to kind of um, consider. What about if someone's thinking, well, I've, I've read about MTHFR um, gene mutations and, and I've been told that methylcobalamin, methylcobalamin is actually better absorbed as a result of, you know, someone who perhaps has that gene mutation? Well, I mean, you know, for somebody that knows that they have that gene mutation, <clears throat> if they want to take methylcobalamin, I'm just, you know, I'm not going to argue with them about it. Um, you know, for the, <coughs> excuse me, for those very specific circumstances, I mean, mm -hmm. for people who smoke, it might be a better option. Um, but, you know, for the general population, it's for an across the board kind of recommendation. I, I'm always going to recommend cyanocobalamin. 
Right. And in terms of cyanocobalamin, I know there's a few different options that you recommend, but what's what's the the sort of simplest way um, that you would recommend someone supplement with cyanocobalamin to achieve healthy B12 status? I would say 25 micrograms a day is is the easiest. The only thing that makes that that not so easy is the fact that it's kind of difficult to find um, mm-hmm. vitamin B12 pills that have that have that low a dose. Right. of uh, of cyanocobalamin. So most pills have much more than that. Um, and, and so it might be easier for some people to just take a thousand micrograms a couple times, two or three times a week. And if someone's wondering, well, Ginny, the, the RDI is, I think in Australia, I think it's 2.4 micrograms. It might be a little different in the States and um, other countries, but why is that dose that you're recommending so much higher than what the RDI is? Yeah, it's really an odd recommendation uh, c- compared to, um, to to the RDI or the RDA. Um, the reason for that is that most people get omnivores get their vitamin B12 throughout the day in small doses, and um, that's the way vitamin B12 is absorbed best in small amounts. When you start to take it, when you start to consume it um, less often in larger amounts, your body absorbs proportionally less of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to do with, with the way vitamin B12 is, is absorbed. It's absorbed in two different ways and it attaches to those receptors in, in your body and saturates them. So you can only take in so much at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we do some fancy math to, to come up with these numbers to, to show people how much they need to eat and uh, how much they need to consume if they're only taking vitamin B12 once a day instead of getting it you know, from three meals and a snack, um, or if they're only getting it two times a week. Um, and on the uh, Jack Norris's website, Vegan Health, has a very specific uh, discussion mm-hmm. of, how the, of how we arrive at, at those numbers. It's more than most people want to know, but the information is is there. Right. No, I I think it's a fabulous resource that is great to point out. I'll put that into the show notes too. I think everyone should get familiar with that website if you if you want to learn you know more about vitamin B twelve or or really just vegan diets in general. There's there's a huge amount of great information. It's always being updated as well. So um, I'll make sure I put that into the the show notes. Just quickly, what about if someone's thinking? Uh, I, I am consuming uh, fortified foods, so a plant-based milk that maybe contains B12, some nutritional yeast, maybe some other products. Is there anything that they need to be thinking about in terms of spacing those out over the day or the amount of those that they would need to consume? Yeah, um, there is. We get very picky when we talk about vitamin B12. I don't like to give give people too many rules and, and mm-hmm. you know, make them jump through too many hoops in order to meet nutrient needs. But when it comes to vitamin B12, we have to do that a little bit. If, if you're getting vitamin B12 from fortified foods, you need to eat at least two servings of those foods a day, and they should be consumed about three hours apart. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that, give, that gives these receptors time to, to take, the, take the vitamin B12, absorb it, and open up again for the, for the next dose of, of B12. Okay, great. So it's a little it's a little picky, but um, yeah. but some people prefer to get vitamin B twelve from fortified foods, and that's absolutely mm-hmm. reasonable. Yeah, certainly possible. Mm-hmm. If if someone is wanting to understand their B twelve status, 
So I guess first question is, let's say you are supplementing routinely with that 25 micrograms or, or thereabouts daily, you feel fine. Is there a need to, to check your B12 status in the first place? And if for whatever reason someone did get a B12 test or really wanted to understand their, their B12 status, uh, what, what would you recommend they're, they're sort of thinking about or discussing with their doctor or, or what types of tests would you like to see them have ordered? Yeah, because depending on their diet uh, and a blood level of vitamin B12 um, may or may not reflect your actual vitamin B12 status. You really want to know more about um, functional. Uh, you want to have functional tests that tell you more about vitamin B12 activity in your body, like an MMA test. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you can get your doctor to, to do, to delve into vitamin B12 a little bit more by doing, doing some of these other tests, then that's, that's a really good idea. My okay. doctor's always very resistant to it. She says, well, you take a vitamin B12 supplement, right? And I say, yeah. And so she doesn't, she doesn't want to do the test. Mm-hmm. Okay. So MMA and perhaps just to, to kind of really tie off on B12, what would be potential symptoms or signs for someone? Let's say someone has been eating a, uh, a vegan diet for five years, six years, has not been supplementing, but has had some exposure to B12 through fortified foods, but just hasn't really been staying on top of it. What, what are the kind of signs or symptoms, things that they might experience that may be suggesting that their B12 is on the lower side? Um. Probably what would be the, what would be the most obvious and the most likely would be uh, symptoms associated with anemia. So fatigue um, w- would be a good indicator. Some people might ha- might um, experience some of the neurological symptoms before um, before they even have anemia. So maybe uh, a little bit of weakness in the extremities, some tingling. Um, you know, interestingly, some of the uh, some of the, the conditions that we associate with aging, um, cognitive decline, hearing decline, balance issues, uh, we're finding sometimes are actually vitamin B12 deficiency. Mm. So vitamin B12 affects both, both blood health and, um, uh, and uh, neurons. So there is a host of potential symptoms, but you would want to look for tingling, weakness, tiredness. Those would be uh, in good indicators of vitamin B12 deficiency. Yeah, so not something that we want to experience. So fortunately, there's an easy way to 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 cover this, and hopefully, that's the the take home message here is to find that supplementation or fortified food protocol, and to just be cognizant of it. Once you've kind of set that up, the great thing is it's really just set and forget. It's not something that you have to keep uh, worrying about on a on a daily basis. I certainly don't. And it's just it's the easy, it's the easiest thing in the world, and I do understand the resistance to it, but it is so easy yeah. and so important. Before we jump to number fifteen, are there any other nutrients that you would want to bring folks' attention to that you would would like them to consider supplementing outside of vitamin B twelve? Yeah, vitamin D, certainly. Um, and, you know, unless people are absolutely certain that they're getting enough sun exposure. Now, you're in Australia. I oh, am. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's, there's plenty of sun there. Um, uh, 
you know, I mean, of course, everyone is weighing the risk of skin cancer right. against uh, against sun exposure for vitamin D. And I am really a big fan of using um, sunscreen and taking a vitamin D supplement. And that is not a vegan issue. That is an issue for everyone eating every every kind of diet. Sure. Um, so vegans need to be concerned about that, but it's not it's not a mm-hmm. shortcoming of of vegan diets. Some vegans might want to consider iodine. Um, if they're not using iodized salt, iodine is a, is another nutrient that's kind of tricky because we don't we don't really measure it and we don't know how much is in the foods that we eat because the amount of iodine is so variable among foods depends on where they're grown. Um, so uh, you know, omnivores omnivores get iodine from uh, seafood and from dairy products. So uh, vegans don't have those two sources. We do have iodized salt. Um, we have sea vegetables. I don't think that they are especially, like land vegetables, I don't think that they're especially reliable. So I don't like to see vegans depending on them. So an iodine supplement can be a good choice for mm-hmm. some people. Yeah, I used to throw out the sea vegetables as an option, but with more reading and discussions, it's something I'm kind of definitely moving away from, I think the supplementation is going to be a more reliable, consistent source for sure. So iodine, vitamin D3, and on on vitamin D3, I think it's also worth just mentioning, I know here in Australia anyway, it's not, D3 supplements are not always vegan. So if you were looking for a vegan source, then uh, you'd want to find a brand that sort of makes it clear on the label that they're sourcing um, their vitamin, either D3 from, I think, algae or D2 comes from mushroom. Do you have any preference between the two of those? Would either of those be okay? I think either one is okay. Um, I tend to like vitamin D3, um, especially if somebody has low vitamin D levels. I think that vitamin D3 is uh, possibly a little bit more effective in reversing those levels. I think if you have good vitamin D status, then probably vitamin D2 is is good enough to maintain that. Right. Um, but in in the um, in the United States, vegan vitamin D three is is getting very easy to find. It used to be just you know, used to not exist, and then and then for many years there was just one brand of it. But now we have quite a few. Um, so if you can get that, I think it's a good choice. And I apologize if I missed this, but just on D three or D two or D in general and iodine, what is there a ballpark sort of a, a daily um, dosage that that you? you would be recommending for most people? I recommend the RDA for vitamin D, you know, just six, 600 or, mm-hmm. you know, 800 I use a, a day. Um, uh, for iodine, I don't think that you need to take the RDA. I think you want to take just a little bit as a little bit of insurance. So maybe, you know, like 90 to 150 micrograms two or three times a week. Right. Um, that's, that's, that will not meet the RDA, but it's going to give your, your iodine intake a little bit of a boost. And I might be opening a can of worms here because this is probably more than a short answer, but where, <laughs> where do you kind of land on EPA and DHA when we're yeah. thinking about omega-3s and the difference between, say, those and, and ALA and, and whether someone that's not eating uh, seafood or a direct source of DHA and EPA needs to supplement? Yeah, I just, I don't know. I just don't know. And it is, I have changed my mind about this more times than, than I can remember. Um, 
I, you know, I don't know that the, that the evidence for health benefits of DHA and EPA are overwhelmingly compelling, but there is some evidence there. Um, and so it's, it's, I think that it's the kind of thing where I want to say, yeah, just take it as, an, as, as insurance because it's not going to hurt you. So, um, so take it a few times a week just in case it turns out that, that it really is important. The reason I have trouble saying that is that these supplements are really expensive, the, the vegan DHA and EPA. And I know that it's a burden for a lot of people to, to, you know, vitamin B12, I mean, that's just as cheap as could be. Same thing with vitamin D, but it could be a burden for a lot of people to take these other supplements. And so it's something that I would really like to be right about. I would really like to be able to tell people exactly what they should do with this, but I just can't. Um, I take them, um, uh, a few times a week. I don't take anything close to what the, the, you know, the, the major, um, health organizations are recommending my doses are less than that simply because they are expensive. Um, so I think that if you, if you can afford it, it's a good thing to do. I think that if you can't, it's, you know, probably just don't sweat it. Cause we just don't know. Mm. Lots of people in the world don't eat fish right? and yeah. have good health. I think something that you said there that is refreshing, but, uh, I think people will appreciate is I don't know. Um, and this is one of those topics where it's not particularly clear and things might change and there's a lot of different things to weigh up and cost being one of those. I'd like to see, you know, a more research that helps us better understand, particularly I'd love to see uh, a group of vegans with some that are supplementing and some that are not, this might be wishful thinking and looking at, at longer term health outcomes, um, that's going to take some study to kind of pull together. Uh, yeah, I think you know, it's um, I, I'm always I'm always struck by the fact that um, in the epidemiological studies that um, health benefits uh, uh, in regard to heart disease in particular are are not what we would expect to see in vegans. They're not as compelling um, as as what we would expect to see, and so I am always wondering what what is the reason for that why are we not seeing a, you know across the board and absolutely um significantly that vegans have much lower risk for heart disease we just don't see that consistently and so what is the reason for that is it lack of dha and epa you know uh would be would all vegans be better off with those supplements i just i just don't know mm -hmm. yeah well maybe we'll we'll get some some more research in future years that will help shed some light on that. And I mean, if that was the case, speaking of price and affordability and, and whatnot, it would be nice to see DHA and EPA perhaps used a little more through the food system mm -hmm. and in some of yeah. these, um, you know, fortification or I have seen some um, suggestions that there are certain plants that you can grow and and do it in a certain way where you increase the 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 dha and epa content in those plants so there's some neat kind of i guess potential innovation to mm -hmm. from a public health point of view yeah if the science is there to then say okay great well how do we actually make this something that is accessible yeah. um which of course is a whole nother conversation uh number 15 i love this one uh 
a healthy whole food plant-based diet guarantees good health. People who eat this way don't require medication, and I'm going to say it, including statins. <laughs> <laughs> the S word. <laughs> I know. I've just got myself in a lot of trouble on Twitter. <laughs> oh, well, there's no diet, of course, that, that guarantees, um, guarantees optimal health for everyone. There are certainly medical conditions, not just high LDL cholesterol, that you know people can do all of the so-called right things and are still going to need medication to 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 get uh, cholesterol, blood sugar, anything else where where they're supposed to be. So it's you know, and it's just it's such a it, it's such an unfortunate belief because yes, we can do so much good stuff through diet. We can really treat a lot of conditions and and help people to be healthier simply through diet changes there's no doubt about that but um but this belief that it's that it's all powerful and that people who do all of the right things will never have to take medication it shames people so much when they do have to take medication and and you know that's that's just not fair i mean whatever you know whatever you need to do to to get your health where you want it to be is 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 what you should do and that includes taking statins and this idea of, I guess, vegan diet or whole food plant-based diet guaranteeing good health, was that the inspiration behind your book, Even Vegans Die? Yeah, it was. Um, uh, we wrote that book too. We wrote that book primarily, I, that was with um, Carol J. Adams and, and Patty Brightman. And we wrote that book to address some of the shame that people felt around being sick, being vegan and being sick, and especially having a higher body weight and being vegan. Um, and uh, I, we did, you know, we talked to a lot of people. I solicited a lot of stories through, through my blog, through my website, and they were just heartbreaking. How many people are vegan for the animals and they are afraid to go out and um, advocate for animals, you know, afraid to speak up about their veganism because they're fat or they have diabetes. And, um, and they feel like they're not a good poster child for veganism. They feel like they don't have the right to speak out on behalf of animals. And so um, we heard those stories and we wanted to address that and say, you know, look, veganism is not a guarantee that you're going to be healthy. It's not a guarantee that you're going to be thin. And it's not a guarantee that you're not going to die. Even mm -hmm. vegans die. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that was the inspiration for that. Okay. Well, that's another one that people can put on their reading list that's my it's my favorite book that i've written is it okay <laughs> yeah well we'll put that in the show notes um the last myth that we have and i think this almost ties back to dairy because i often see this come up you mentioned that we just don't have the evidence when it comes to to dairy or that there's conflicting evidence um this myth is that industry-funded research should never be trusted and and when i say I, I often see this with dairy. Often when speaking about the, the evidence that we do have on dairy, I'm certainly met with, well, most of the research is funded by the dairy industry, so what do you expect? So talk to me about industry-funded research and, and whether it should you know, never be trusted. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, always, I think that uh, with, with any kind of research, you have to look at the study design and, um, and, and the, the, you know, the way the conclusions are, the way the discussion and the conclusions are stated. 
And if it's a good study and the results are stated um, fairly, then it doesn't matter who paid who paid for that study. And um, uh, it's it's just it's it's just um, uh, we can't just we can't dismiss some we can't dismiss good findings and important findings just because of, of who paid for them. The other issue is that um, there's bias in all kinds of. Uh, of research. You know, somebody, a researcher who has built their career around a particular theory, a particular hypothesis is going to be biased when they, when they do research on that particular subject. Um, people who are doing research on plant-based diets, who are, um, you know, animal advocates, there are a whole bunch of people, there's a whole bunch of research on the benefits of vegan diets that have come mm. from people who are a very pro vegan diet because because they're animal rights activists and there's a strong bias with that so we have to be really careful about this this idea of bias i think that almost everyone brings some bias to almost all researchers bring some bias to to the research that they're doing and so uh, you, you know they we have to trust that they're good researchers who are going to design a study well and report the findings fairly. And if they don't, you can usually tell. I mean, somebody who knows how to read the literature is usually going to be able to tell if, um, if that's not true. Right. So you mentioned earlier that you, you started or earlier in your career you were working with PCRM. So if we were to kind of, um, you know, I don't want to incite an argument at all, but I definitely hear from from people online that PCRM are biased and and they are producing studies to to simply uh, help support their the belief that animals animal foods should not be eaten um, and protect animals. Would is is there any truth to that? Well, um, I I want to say that yes, there is truth to that, but that it's not necessarily a bad thing. When I talk about the fact that um, that most researchers, that many researchers come to to these topics with some kind of a bias, it doesn't mean that their research is bad. It just means that there is the potential for um, for, for that bias, um, and that can certainly be true with PCRM. I mean, you know, their studies they do good studies. Their their research is good. I do think that they have a that they have a, a pro vegan bias. I you know that organization is. Um, uh, animal rights is, is, is a part of, of what they do. So I think that we would want to look at them with as much skepticism as we look at research that is funded by the dairy industry. But it doesn't mean that any of that research is bad. Mm -hmm. It just means that we want to bring the same level of skepticism to right. all of these researchers. Right. Do you think that for like the general public, when they when they learn that PCRM or just other organizations similar to that are motiva motivated by the ethics, they lose trust in the health information that they're providing or they question, um, they second, second guess it? Um, yes. I, th I think that that may be true for many people. I think that's why transparency is so important. Um, uh, I think just, being really upfront about about the um, the things that are driving what you do makes it easier for for people to believe what you're saying. 
of all of these myths that we've covered, and we went through about 16, and, and I certainly don't expect you to, to remember all of them, but if you just think about misinformation and myths in general and, and those that you've come across during your career, written about, spoken about, um, tried to clarify, which are the ones or the one that you think represents the greatest risk to health outcomes for vegans? Um, I think I think probably... In terms of the one that that has the potential to to do the greatest harm, it it would be this idea that simply eating a wide variety of foods will ensure mm-hmm. that um, that all nutrient needs are met, and um, and then a close cousin to that, of course, is this idea that we that we don't need to take any supplements, that we don't need vitamin B twelve supplements. I think that those two certainly have the potential to harm vegans, to um, encourage vegans to make poor food choices and, and end up with, with a nutrient deficiency or just not feeling well. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that has potential to harm health, personal health, which of course is a bad thing. And, um, to turn people away from veganism, which is also a bad thing. Now, um, we've kind of spoken about this, but in terms of trying to help correct some of this misinformation and, and reduce it. Of course, education, everything you're doing is, is a hugely important part of that. But let's, let's say, let's talk about the folks that are listening. Perhaps they're on social media and they stumble across some information online and they sort of take it at, at face value and then they share it with good intentions because I think that can happen too. Oh, yeah. And uh, so it's not just the initial creation of the information, but then it's the social sharing, which really just adds fuel to the fire. So I'm I'm kind of interested here as we come to the end of this, if you have any tips, what do you think people can do when they come across a piece of information online that might help them sort of fill, put it through a filter or help them determine if it's good information and it's actually worth sharing with their friends and family or not? It's so hard. I, I, think, that, I think that the only thing that you can do is to um, check it against reliable resources mm-hmm. um, like Vegan Health and the Vegetarian Resource Group. Um, you know, I think, I think my website has evidence-based nutrition information on it. And I think that um, uh, the Vegetarian Nutrition Dietetic Practice Group has fact sheets with, with good information. So I think you know, it's a little bit laborious, but I think that, that checking this information against reliable resources is, is the, the best thing that you can do because it's so hard to know. Um, you know, I see it as soon as I start, you know, kind of tiptoeing out of my own area of expertise into something like the environment which I have, you know, has a, a big connection to diet, but it's not my area of expertise. And even the, um, you know, the, the idea of humans being, a, um, being, natural, omniv- uh, being natural herbivores, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, some, physiolo- some evolution and physiology that's mm-hmm. kind of outside of my area of expertise. So as soon as I, as soon as I start reading about those things, I find that I can, can be caught up in things that may be questionable mm-hmm. and I need to be really careful. So it's very difficult to know. There's mm-hmm. so much misinformation out there. There's so much junk science and so much noise um, that you just have to, you just have to stick with the reliable, reliable resources. Yeah. That's a good point that we're all susceptible 
to, to this. And uh, have you ever done a blog on the reliable resources and, and some of those different resources that you recommend? I have, yeah. Okay. I'd be happy cool. to share that with you. Yeah, we'll put that into to the show notes. Uh, okay. Ginny, this has been incredibly informative. Is there anything that you feel like we missed that perhaps you wanted to add or mention here at the end, or do you think we, we covered everything that you wanted to? Oh, we probably didn't cover everything. There's, there are a lot of myths, but boy, we covered 15 of them. That's pretty good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's nothing, I mean, nothing comes to mind. I, I think that we really, we hit on the, the really important things. We hit on the things that, that tend to come up over okay. and over again on cool. social media. We can leave some space for, for a part yeah. two continuation. And if there are any other uh, myths or things, claims online that you're not sure about, perhaps you can send them in to myself or Ginny and we can use those as uh, a way of uh, extending this episode in, into the future. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you so much for, for taking thank the you. time to do this. I know that it's going to be incredibly helpful for the listeners. I know that people are going to share it far and wide with their family. Can you just remind listeners what's the best place for them to to find you online and um, some information about your website and and the books for those that are wanting to learn more? Yeah, so I'm the the my website is theveganrd.com and that is also my Twitter and Facebook name the vegan at the vegan rd and um, I'm Ginny uh, Messina on uh, Instagram because I post lots of pictures of my cats in my garden. So I, um, much, much more diverse, much more of my life. Um, and, uh, and my books, my, my books are, uh, vegan for life. Uh, even vegans die never too late to go vegan for older people, for people over 50 who want to dabble awesome. in a, in a vegan diet. And did you also write vegan for her? Is that another I one? I did write vegan right. for her. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So that's yeah. another one. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ginny. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes finally the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends enjoy your week stay well and i look forward to catching you in the next episode